Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. All right, well, we are in session 11 of our look through the Bible in a year. And this time we're taking a look at two books that happen simultaneously that used to be a single volume. Uh, this session is titled The Time of the Judges, and that's a clue to you as to what we're going to cover. But before we go further, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to tackle this uh, this difficult chapter in the history of your people. Open our hearts as well as our minds to its message and to the wisdom that we can glean from it. Help to separate us um, from the influences that um, would cause its pages to become tainted with, with bad teaching, with bad judgment. And help us to read it for what it is, Lord. A description of what it is like when your people abandon you and see and try to work through their wisdom instead of yours. In the most holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. At the conclusion of the Civil War, a, a Pennsylvania Baptist who just happened to be a brigadier general in the Army's Corps of Engineers was given the privilege of becoming the moderator of his church. And so disturbed by what he found during church council meetings was he that he did what any good engineer would do. He wrote a book, a procedure manual on how to conduct orderly businesses, uh, business meetings. And so disturbed by his own people was he that he cites the book of Judges as his reason for doing so. In fact, on page one of what would later become Robert's Rules of Order, the guy's name was Brigadier General Henry Martin Robert. He quotes from the book of Judges saying, where there is no law but every man does what is right in his own eyes, there is but the least of real liberty. So, for those of us Baptists, congratulations. Keep orderly business meetings and you won't have another repeat. But the time of the judges is interesting in terms of Israel's history uh, because it's a period where the people of God decided to ignore the wisdom of God and the direction of God. And because of that, they ended up spiraling out of control. Now, the writer of the book of Judges describes this spiral, and I've actually given it to you beforehand, as what I call the cyclical nature of human nature. That was back from uh, session three, I believe that it was. We'll talk about that in just a second. I'll put it on the screen for you. But the two books that we're going to try to tackle in this one session are the books of Judges and of Ruth. Back before the 5th century A.D., they were actually one volume. Both are attributed to Samuel. They both cover roughly the same time period in Israel's history. But uh, the book of Judges 
is a rather, it starts out with Israel having all these advantages. They've just come out of a relationship, they've just come out of their wilderness wanderings, they've captured the land of promise, Uh, they have God's favor, and then they squander that. And they start spiraling out of control so that with each passing page, with each passing chapter, they drift farther and farther away, not only of God, but their, their perception of who God is. The only thing that made Israel different from the nations around it was their relationship with God and their adherence to His covenant. And when they start removing themselves from God's definition of righteousness, they become just like everybody else. Human nature reasserts itself over the righteous nature. So, uh, recapping really quickly from the book of Joshua where we left off, the land had been for the most part conquered by Israel. And it was organized into regional states based on tribe, as we'll see in the map in just a second. From these states, Israel at this point in time wasn't a kingdom, so to speak. It wasn't completely and totally unified under one strict rule. But it was ruled, it was basically a confederation. It was a a loose band of people who were gathered together based on their ethnic identity and their worship of God and their adherence to His covenant. And when they drift away from that, their ability to, gain, to, to stay cohesive falls apart, as we're going to see. Each tribe was then divided further into cities and farms. Uh, calls, the book calls it their inheritance based on their clans and their families. And Joshua, at the very conclusion of his book, reminds Israel of its covenantal obligations. In fact, he writes at the very end, Joshua 24, and this is verses 14 through 18. This is his final instructions before his death. Fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. This is kind of a reiteration of Joshua chapter 1. He was called to righteousness and to obedience, and now he's calling them again in this upcoming generation to remember who God is and to be obedient to him. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it for us to forsake the Lord, to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God Himself who brought us and our parents up from Egypt, from the land of slavery, and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us in our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites, who lived in this land. We too will serve the Lord because He is our God. So they get it. They understand God. They understand the relationship with God. They understand the concept of faithfulness to Him. This is the way that the tribes were organized. There are effectively uh, many states. The whole land itself is roughly the size of the state of New Jersey. Even though they are one nation, one ethnos, one one people group, so to speak. And each parcel of land basically acts as its own state with the tribal elders reigning over them. 
This is where the having your meetings at the city gates begins to take place. So getting into Judges itself, we're looking at the generation after the book of Joshua. The book gets its name from the Hebrew word sapat, which means to rule, to govern, or to judge, to enact judgment. It is not, they are not judges in the courtroom sense. They are basically tribal chieftains who are anointed by God with certain prophetic gifts through the power of the Holy Spirit to act as uh, deliverers and sources of unity. Now, whether or whether or not they remain faithful to that call, we'll get into in just a second. The book itself is attributed to, its authorship is attributed to the last of the judges, the prophet Samuel, and it's dated to around the time of the reign of Saul, about 1050 BC. It covers about a 400, give or take, year span. I've heard anything from the high 300s to 480 and so forth, but roughly about 380 to 1050 BC. So it's a good chunk of history. It's actually surprising that Israel in this state lasted this long. Now, Israel at this time was a pure theocracy, meaning who was the ruler? God Himself was their king. In fact, when we get to the book of 1 Samuel and when the transition happens between the time of the judges, Samuel being the last judge, and the rise of King Saul, God will say, they haven't rejected you, they have rejected me as their king. So again, these were states covered by tribal elders who also eventually would be called to task by these judges. Prophetic chieftains who were responsible for ensuring God's will was carried out in Israel and charged with delivering the people of God from the aggression of their neighbors. This is the basic outline of the book. Chapters 1 and 2 form a kind of a prologue. Chapter 1 is the, the last days of Joshua and the way that Israel went about cleaning up the last of the Canaanite resistance within the land. And chapter 2 then is the author's own note as to how the time of the judges was different, was unique in Israel's history. He defines Israel's sin as pronounced by God Himself and judgment that would haunt them through this entire period. Chapters 3 through 16 talk about the external persecution of Israel by its neighbors and its deliverance by the judges. But the chapters 17 through 21, even though they encompass about the same time, talk about internal strife and disobedience. In fact, there is one skirmish covered in 17, through, uh, 17 and 18, and then 20 through 21, 19 through 21, excuse me, talk about what you could call Israel's first civil war. So these are the notes of Samuel himself, what we believe to be attributed to him, on kind of the basis as to why he's writing the book in the first place. Starting with Judges 2.10, he writes that after that whole generation, the generation of Joshua, had gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. So after they'd gone through this insane revival period where all the people of God had gathered together under Joshua and proclaimed their allegiance to God, had said, basically had given a testimony, a profession of faith in Him and everything that He'd done, uh, delivering them from Egypt, identifying Him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their ancestors, they apparently didn't teach their children. And because they hadn't taught their children, either through Passover or through the observation of, of what the 
the Levites were supposed to do, as we're going to see in a couple of chapters, the whole generation that came after them forgot who God was and their relationship to Him. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, bless you, and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. This is exactly what God had foretold in Deuteronomy and Joshua. Drive them out of the land or they will be a snare for you. They will rob you of your relationship with me and they will work to cause you to fall into the exact same kind of idolatry, the exact same kind of unrighteousness, the exact same human sacrifice, the exact same depravity that they live in. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook Him and they served Baal and the Ashtaroths, the, the pantheons common in that area. Verse 14, In His anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all, uh, excuse me, all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves before other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's command. So you can go already hear the wording, the, the formatting that would not only be used here, but also in the books of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and in through the Kings and the Chronicles, that same type of, of wordplay, they did evil in the sight of the Lord their God. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who had oppressed and afflicted them. Please underline this in your copy of God's Word. That even though God had judged them, God's love for them prevailed. God's grace for them was still present, even in the midst of their disobedience. We're going to see that we have a very patient, a very long-suffering God, especially when we get to someone by the name of Samson. If anybody, if God had patience with any one person... He definitely had patience with Samson. The Lord relented because of their groaning under, these, under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. So he's describing this, this cyclical behavior where the cycle starts to spiral more and more out of control with each passing turn. When the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So again, here we've got basically the cycle, the cyclical nature of human nature. We'd start out with a period of revival and rededication as we saw throughout Torah and even into, the, even into Joshua. And we go through this cycle. We go through revival and rededication to a time of peace in God's blessing. From there we get comfortable in God's blessing and we grow proud. 
we grow into self-reliance and pride instead of reliance upon him. And then once that sets in, once the enemy has that toehold in us, he makes it a foothold by establishing a system of idolatry that rips them in their own self-reliance away from their relationship with God. And that then God turns them over. As, as, as Paul would write down in Romans chapter 1, he, when they deny God's sovereignty over them, he releases them, he turns them over to a reprobate mind. If you want to think about it, uh, Judges is, is a case in point as to Romans chapter 1 fulfilling itself. So God gives, himself over, gives them over excuse me, to their reprobation and they end up falling into injustice and depravity. God withdraws his protection from them. But he always is faithful. There's always a faithful remnant. The remnant is called out. There's a period of judgment and desolation. And then the people cry out to God in repentance. And God rescues them in his grace. He sends a deliverer. And they return to him again in revival and rededication. And then the cycle continues again and again and again. Each time worsening each time going more and more away from him. The single verse that describes the book of Judges more than any other can be found in Judges 17.6, and it's actually repeated three more times in the book. In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was what? Right in his own eyes, under his own wisdom, forsaking the wisdom of God, defining for himself what is right and what is wrong. Do not let your conscience be your guide. Never let your conscience be your guide. The human conscience is only worthy of, 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 of any kind of direction when it has been tempered and trained by experience and by the law of a righteousness much greater than our own. That's why spirituality, that's why the Christian religion and discipleship is so vital. If we do only what is right in our own eyes, we'll get it wrong every time. We have to teach ourselves and our children after us to look for the things of God. Central themes. From Joshua we picked up that God had called Israel to be a model of moral and a just people that would point the world towards Him. But through Judges we also find out that without faithfulness to God, the people of God are actually the same as their pagan neighbors. Without a godly influence, the genetics of Israel doesn't make Israel a different person than the people around them. Only their faithfulness to God, the covenant, the word of God, only that, that righteousness makes them different. Without that, there's no difference. We, we see that in the church too. We see symptomatically, when the church gets infiltrated by the world, the church ceases to look different from the world. When we stop discipling, the numbers that should be different, our divorce rates should be different, our marriage rates should be different, our charitable giving should be different. Everything that makes us a just, verdant, and an equitable people should be different from the rest of the world. We should be better than them. Not because we deserve to be, but because we have been trained to be and influenced to be by the Holy Spirit of God and by the Word of God. But without that influence... We look like the rest of the world. That's one of the central truths that we glean from Judges. And with each passing cycle, the corruption increases. Those who God chooses are still flawed human beings. 
And God, even though God may have his favor on them for a while, God does not necessarily condone their actions. David, as we're going to read later on, was a king after God's own heart. Did he condone what happened with Bathsheba? Absolutely not. Did God condone the behavior and the attitudes of Samson? Absolutely not. So even though God uses somebody for his purpose, the entire biography of that person does not necessarily align with the will of God. This is something that we need to train ourselves when we're considering books like this in the Old Testament. Because a lot of times people come back to us and say, well, look at Samson. Wasn't Samson someone that God wanted? Uh, look, at, um, look at Gideon. Wasn't Gideon somebody that God appointed in leadership? Wasn't he one of your examples? In some ways he was an example of things to do, and lots of other ways he was an example of things not to do. Even when the people are not faithful, God is. God delights in the making and keeping of promises to his children. Another truth that we can gain from this, you become like the God you worship. The difference between Israel and her neighbors ultimately was the nature of human nature and the constraints that they put on it. You become like the God you worship, those made in your image or the God whose image you're seeking to be conformed into. So the prologue, chapters 1 and 2, Israel ignored God's order to drive out the lands of the, excuse me, to drive out the Canaanites. They actually ended up making treaties and worse, uh, turned some of the tribes into a labor class, basically turned them into the Roman variant of slavery when uh, they were supposed to drive them out to prohibit them from being snared by them. They ended up, as a result, embracing Canaanite idolatry. As a result of that, they become like the people, like the things they worship. So they became morally corrupt. God is unique in all the rest of the gods that you hear about because He's not capricious. God never changes His mind. How many times did Zeus keep a promise? He couldn't even keep his marriage vows straight. But let's move on. The people of Israel became morally corrupt. They participated in immoral worship, a worship that included uh, institutionalized sexual promiscuity and human sacrifice to the point of sacrificing babies. Israel also adapted elements of the Canaanite culture and intermarried with them. Now, some people bring Ruth and Rahab up as exceptions to this rule. I do not believe that they were, and I'll talk about that when we get on to Ruth. When they married the Canaanites during this period of time, the Canaanite women or the Canaanite men didn't change their cultural attachments. They didn't change their religious attachments. Ruth became a Jew. Your people will be my people. Your God shall be my God. She was not married to Boaz as a Moabite. She was married to Boaz as a converted Jew. That's the difference. So we begin with three examples of good judges. Chapters 3 through 4. Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah. They're characterized by their faithfulness to God even under insurmountable pressures. Israel was oppressed in these two chapters uh, through the Armenians, the Moabites, and the Canaanites. They were defeated by God through the judge and the forces that were loyal to them. 
And then we go through the good to the, the kind of okay. Gideon starts out with a world of promise, even though he begins his life as being something of a coward. Uh, he was oppressed by the Midianites. He, he hides himself just to, to thresh grain. He asks for evidence when he hears the voice call out to him, Hail, mighty warrior! Who are you talking to? Who? Yeah, who? Me? He, he asks God just to make sure he's not listening to his own ego or hearing a delusion. He asks for evidence of God's call. But faithful was he to the voice of God in the beginning. He ends up uh, defeating vast Midianite forces with an army of 300 people. But he was also characterized by a very fierce temper to the point that he put to death several of his fellow Israelites when they wouldn't assist him. He, he eventually sets up an idol, uh, an ephod that would be worshipped, which strikes me as being odd. But he sets up an idol made from plundered gold. And he even later on establishes, as, as a judge called by God, he establishes a ruling dynasty out of his own family. Jephthah. You see how in the next three, how they get worse and worse. So he was an, an illegitimate son of Gilead. He was actually driven by the legitimate sons of his father from that city. This was during the Ammonite oppression. And he was promised political leadership in Gilead for his military service because apparently during that time he'd gained quite the reputation as the soldier. But he forgets the God he's supposed to serve. Not by name, but by character. He forgets the behavior of God and he tries to make a sacrificial deal with God, a bargain with God. Instead of relying on God's keeping of promises, he starts to think of the God of the Israelites as a version of the Canaanite gods in the way that he behaves, in the way that he interacts, that he's capricious, that he could change his mind at any moment. So he makes this deal with him that if he, is, if, if he but gives the Amorites into his hands, he will sacrifice, after the battle is over, he will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his door. Animals don't come out of the doors of homes. This isn't a tragedy because a human being comes out. It's a tragedy in his mind because which human being? He's talking about the door of his own home. So the Amorites are defeated, and the first person that comes out his door, dancing out his door to congratulate him for the victory that God has given him, is his only daughter, his only child. He has no sons, he has no other children, and he deeply loves her. He gives her, at her own request, he explains the bargain and explains what's going on. Again, God's voice doesn't play into this. This is him behaving a certain way. He effectively has treated the God of Israel in the same way with the same personality as the, other, as the Canaanite gods. He gives her and her friends a two-month mourning period, and then he takes her life in sacrifice to him. Later on, he fights a, a, a mild version of a civil war against the tribe of Ephraim and puts many of them to death. So you've got one, you've got three very faithful ones. You've got one that became proud and turned idolatrous. You've got another one who forgot 
the personality and the nature of, of the God of Israel and how he was unique among the gods of the land. And now you come to Samson. Samson is a dark reflection of Samuel's own story. Samson and Samuel were both born to barren women. And out of a sense of rejoicing, their mothers dedicate them to God as a lifelong Nazarite. Now we've covered what a Nazarite vow is in, in this setting in the past. But just as a kind of refresh, uh, refresher, it's usually just a season that someone dedicates themselves to God in, in, in ritual purity. Uh, but in the case of these two people, both of them were dedicated from birth to maintain this kind of lifestyle. And it's character, it's ritual, they're ritually set apart for God with three basic, three basic qualifiers, I'll put it that way. Number one, lifelong sobriety, or during the Nazarite period, they're supposed to not touch anything with alcohol in it. No alcohol whatsoever, so period of sobriety. In their case, it's supposed to be lifelong, remember that. So Samson, even though we read how much of a partier he was, he was supposed to spend his entire life never touching alcohol. He was also supposed to remain ritually pure, meaning among other things, he could not defile himself by touching anything dead or eating any unclean thing. And we read in one particularly famous story how he comes across the carcass of a lion in which honeybees have built a hive in it. And what does he do? He eats honey straight out of the dead carcass. That's strike two. The last part of the vow involves refraining from cutting one's hair. That's the outward sign of this kind of being set apart. There was nothing magical about Samson's hair. A lot of us are, are victims of our Sunday school coloring books because we believe that there must have been something magical about Samson's hair for when it was cut off, then's when he lost his powers. But it wasn't anything ma magical or mystical. It was a hallmark of a promise. Now, in God's judgment, any time that Samson went back on that promise, went back on that being set apart, God could have withdrawn his favor, his power, his influence, his spirit. Remember, this is the Old Testament. But when Samson went into flings of debauchery and drunkenness, he didn't take away his, uh, his strength. When he defiled himself ceremonially, he didn't take his strength. He waited until he had completely negated his entire vow. God was very long-suffering when it came to Samson. When he had completely undone his faithfulness, God took his hand of protection off. God, in the meantime, had granted him extraordinary strength. And we know that he, he well, I don't know if you could call it reigning, but he uh, stood as judge over Israel during the oppression of the Philistines. In some of your school textbooks, you might have heard them called by the Egyptians as the Sea Peoples. He was characterized by unrighteous personality traits, including sexual promiscuity. He was very violent, wrathful even, and extremely proud. But God remained faithful to him despite his unfaithfulness. When Samson's vow was completely broken, it's then and only then that God's empowerment over him ceases. And God even grants, in a moment of repentance, God even grants Samson one final act of favor, which costs him his life. Now we move from the external oppressors to the internal strife. 
we come across a gentleman in, in the state of Ephraim by the name of Micah in the story of his private temple in chapter 17 and 18. So apparently this Micah had stolen 1,100 shekels of silver from his mother. He returns it because he is afraid. He, he overhears her calling a curse from God upon whoever the person is who stole this vast sum of money. This is effectively more than 1,100 years worth of wages. So we're talking a huge fortune at this time. So Micah returns it to his mother and she forgives him. And she actually consecrates this silver to the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, so that it may be used to cast an idol for Micah. You heard that right. She takes part of the silver. She goes to a silversmith and, and she, she consecrates it to the God of Israel and asks the silversmith to make an idol statue out of it. For there is no king, but everyone does what is what? Right in their own eyes. So the idol is made, and Micah, who is a well-to-do person in his own right, creates a shrine in his home and installs one of his sons as an idol priest. And then a Levite from Bethlehem travels by and finds sanctuary in Micah's home. And then Michael, uh, Micah excuse me, makes a deal with this Levite to become his priest. This is an upgrade. You, son, do something else. This is a Levite. This is someone of God. Now, it doesn't say whether it's a descendant of Aaron or not. It just says he's a wandering Levite. So and that's, that's interesting in itself because Bethlehem at this time is, very, is a very conservative town. For the most part, as we'll see in Ruth, it still holds to the, the worship of Yahweh. But this Levite, priest or, or just part of that tribe, comes up. He gets installed as priest. He gets paid a guaranteed yearly income with clothing and with food and board. So he, he gets a, a contract, basically. Then soldiers from the tribe of Dan spy out Ephraim going on to find what will eventually become their own inheritance uh, to attack and to clear the Canaanites out. And uh, they stop by Micah's house en route and ask the Levite to prophesy over them. Is God going to be with us? Now, later on, they, they scope out this land that will become their tribal inheritance. They go back to their kinsmen. That's, they tell them, let's go and attack and conquer it now while these, these Canaanite people are still at peace. And on their way, they steal the shrine, the idols, the silver, and they recruit that very Levite to become their own priest. And then when Dan, the tribe, becomes Dan, the state, they erect their own shrine, and the whole tribe of Dan falls into idol worship using the stolen shrine, using the Levite as their first head priest. Basically, an entire tribe of Israel divorces itself from the worship of God. And Dan becomes the first tribe to institutionalize idol worship in the land of promise. I want you to note that in the book of Revelation, one name is struck out of the tribal roll call. Guess which one it is? Then we get to this extremely sad story. And I've studied it. I've tried to figure out a nice way to preach it. I've tried to figure out any way to get through it. Because this is a heart-wrenching and quite frankly disgusting story. But it's a cautionary tale which, which Samuel used to drive point the home 
that without the relationship with God, the Israelites are no different than anybody surrounding them. This is an extreme case of that point. A Levite travels to Bethlehem to restore his marriage with an unfaithful concubine. The concubine returns to Bethlehem to home, and he journeys there too. He enters her father's house, and they stay a while, and he finally convinces her to return to Ephraim. Uh, The unfaithful concubine returns home, and as as they're journeying back, they find accommodations in with the tribe of one of the cities in Benjamin. He actually has one of his own countrymen living in a city who finds him staying at a temple in, in the town square, and he warns the Levite, don't stay in the town square. Now, in their traveling party, there are three people. There's the Levite, there's the Levite's concubine, and there's a, a servant boy. So this person who's still an Ephraimite, who is living in this city in Benjamin, tells him, don't, don't camp out in the city park. Come home with me. I'll put you up in my home, but you don't want to stay here. Does that story remind you of anything? So this Levite and his party return to this person's home. The host is overwhelmed by a mob from the city. Bring your guest out so that we may have sex with him. It's a very... These are Israelites. These are Israelites, the people of God. The chosen from among the nations. And it's a direct echo of Sodom. This is what happens when the people of God deny the will of God. The host is attacked. Only there are no angels to defend them. So the host surrenders his daughter. The Levite surrenders his concubine. And the rape gang basically uh, abuses them all night. And they die. The Levite decides to remedy the situation. He dismembers his wife's body into 12 pieces and ships them throughout Israel as evidence of what has just happened. The rest of the tribes flock to his banner, and a civil war begins against Benjamin. And it is so total in its destruction that there are only eight. There, excuse me. There's only six hundred men left. The wives and children are killed off. So, not wanting to see one of the tribes of Israel wiped from the face of the planet, the rest of the Israelites choreograph. They stage a kidnapping during a festival. So that these women would become, so that the tribe might endure. This is depravity to an extreme. For there is no law, where there is no king in Israel, but everyone does what is right in their own eyes. This is the result. This book is particularly poignant in the day we live today. As badly as I hate to say that, when a people deny the sovereignty of God and deny an objective truth that defines the difference between right and wrong, this is the result. And just because we're in a future day doesn't mean that we're morally any more superior than the people of the past. It only means 
that we have more technologically sophisticated ways of harming each other. Samuel basically uses as a benchmark of the increasing depravity the way that culture, in particular this culture, treats women. The book starts out with Deborah, who is herself not only a person of prominence within Israel, she is a judge over Israel. Then we have Jephthah's daughter, who is dearly loved, but becomes a victim to his own spiritual ignorance. And then there is, of course, the story of the concubine, who is seen more as an object than having the sacred worth of a human being, person of eternal significance to God and divine worth. So now that we've worked our way through the bad stuff, let's get to the good stuff. Again, Ruth was at one point in time factored in with the book of the Judges. They were on the same scroll, in other words. But it's so radically different in its approach. It tells the story of love coupled with grace. While even under the law, there's always a thread of God's grace running through the pages of Scripture. So the setting for this story begins in Moab. There is a horrible famine in the area of Bethlehem where Naomi, that's one of the first character, is from. So Naomi's husband and their two sons, they moved down to the area of Moab where apparently things are a lot better. Naomi's husband dies and both of her sons die. So only the three women are left, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And she pleads with them. There's Orpha and there's Ruth, both of them Moabites. And she pleads with them, go back to your family's homes. Find new husbands. Live good lives. I have to return back to Bethlehem and pray for the mercy of what family I have left. And Samuel basically uses these chapters, or this book if you will, to give you the background of what would become the royal line of Israel. And this is the passage that basically sums up this book. While Naomi is trying to convince her daughters-in-law to to go care for yourselves, I am worthless, but you still have a shot at life. Orpha goes away very heartbroken, but Ruth is so attached to this woman and her love and her godly impact on Ruth's own life that she makes a profound profession of faith. Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. At that moment, she ceases to be a Moabite and becomes a part of the commonwealth of Israel. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. This is a short four-chapter book, so I won't go into the, the details of the narrative. I'll let you do that for yourself. You can read through Ruth as, as a whole text in less than an hour. So anyway, verse 19, the two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. And when they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival. And the local women explained, can this be Naomi? 
They, they, they came out wanting to comfort them. Four chapters. Chapter one is basically the challenge. It sets up for you the problem. But the resolve of love, Ruth loves Naomi with a passionate love and sees godliness in her, so much so that she abandons her, her people. She abandons the worship of their gods. Chapter two is the return in the provision of love. So Ruth works through gleaning, through picking up what is left over to provide for Naomi. Chapter three is the law in the request to love. This is where we see Ruth, the woman, propose marriage to Boaz, the man, going to him to ask for his protection. We'll talk about that in a little more in just a second. Where the pathway of grace and redemption is established. And of course, four, there's the blessing of love where we see not only the redemption of the land, but the redemption of the bride. The things that you need to know before you get into the book of Ruth. Ruth is a required reading for anyone that wants to understand the book of Revelation and to understand the relationship between Christ and the church. There are two concepts from the Old Testament law that you have to understand. First one is the goel. The goel can be translated functionally in two different ways, either the avenger of blood or the kinsman redeemer. They are responsible as the next of kin to redeem someone that is related to them from slavery, to seek justice for a murdered relative. Again, you're going to see so many echoes of Christ and Christ's responsibility is function in the book of Revelation to us. He goes after the first murderer. He redeems the land. He takes home the bride. Uh, he's responsible for ensuring that fallow property or pro property left over because of a death is returned and remains in the family. The legal qualifications for being the kinsman redeemer are fourfold. First of all, he has to be a male next of kin. He has to be willing to assume the responsibility for caring for whoever is attached to that household. He has to be capable of ensuring the care of the family and the property. In other words, if there's any debt there, he has to be able to pay that debt or, or satisfy that debt. He doesn't just inherit property, he also inherits any receipts left over from that relationship. And he can have no conflicting responsibilities before he accepts this inheritance or this property up for redemption. The other concept that you need to have a handle on is the concept of the Leverite marriage. This comes from Deuteronomy 25. Basically, if, if a husband or a head of household dies prior to having an heir, the next oldest brother marries his widow. He does so in order to offer her his protection and his resources. She is recognized by law as a wife, and he has to treat her the same as all of his other wives. Another reason that this arrangement comes to pass is so that a son can be raised up in the name of the deceased. In other words, so that family won't die out. It's also responsible for redeeming and carry for the, the deceased's property in trust for the children. Gentile marriage was forbidden by the law of Moses. But God also works through grace. Bethlehem was a very conservative exception to the time of the judges. So this shouldn't have been allowed to happen. What changed? Ruth changed. There's also some prophetic types here that you need to get a handle on. 
to help read into the text. Naomi can be seen by commentators as a reflection of Israel returning to the land after a period of desolation or returning to the land after a period of uh, diaspora. Ruth, by many, is seen as a reflection of the church, the Gentile bride brought into the family of God, first through a statement of faith and then through marriage. Does that sound familiar? I'll go through this really quickly. Uh, the law of gleaning and possession because it take, it's very significant in chapter 2. If you owned a field in this place and time, you had one pass to collect all the fruit, to collect all the harvest. Anything that was not harvested had to be left. The corners of the field had to be left. And this was so that provision could be made for the poor, the widow, and the traveler. In the case of Boaz, the Lord of the harvest, who is the, the type of Christ in this, uh, he actually asks his own field workers to leave a little extra. Don't, don't touch that. Leave that for her. In fact, grab a handful and scatter it around so that she can pick it up. You know, he goes out of his way not to be legalistic strictly, but to show grace, living under the spirit of the law and the compassion that it was intended there's also the concept of the threshing floor. When a barley or wheat harvest happened, what you did was you found a, a windy saddleback in a ridge system, and you had a, these baskets that you would shake the grain loose from its chaff, the, the rough fibrous seed coat, and you'd toss it up, and the chaff, the worthless stuff, would be carried off by the wind. And the heavier seed, the grain itself, would fall back into the basket and you'd separate the wind from the chaff, and the chaff was gathered together and burned. Which makes any time you see a threshing floor in God's Word, it's often a prophetic symbol of judgment for that very reason, separation. There's also the proposal, really quickly as we kind of draw this to a conclusion. The hem of a robe has great significance in this culture. It is your ID badge. The hem of a robe is your signet ring. The pattern woven into your robe basically told someone that looked very carefully what religion you were, because a, a blue thread was always supposed to be integrated into every Israelite hymn. The pattern told them what tribe and what family. In fact, there are times that uh, in this culture, when you signed a contract or a covenant with someone, you would actually press the hem of your robe onto wet clay as a sign that you agreed to the terms and conditions. So when Naomi asks to spread my, your skirt over me, what she's actually in this culture asking to happen is for him to take her under his wing, to provide for her, to care for her, to protect her, to be her husband. That's what that means. Now, unfortunately, when we read that with Western eyes, we don't get what she's saying, and our minds tend to drift in some pretty bad places. But what she's asking is for her, she's asking Boaz for him to redeem the land, more importantly, for him to redeem her. So, as we draw to a conclusion tonight, as always, remember to keep gathering with the people uh, that you're in a group with, sharing your readings and your journal highlights. But I want you to consider these from this session. Going into the next, what is your idea of kingship? Now, 
unfortunately, we saw very recently the death of a great monarch. And so all of us, we, we all kind of have kind of fresh in our minds and we're in a couple of months supposed to see the coronation of a new one for the first time in 70 years. What defines kingship in your mind? For that matter, what defines a godly leader? What defines a godly leader? What are the characteristics needed to be a godly leader? And I want you to think about this too. What defines a prophet? What makes a prophet a prophet? And I'll give you a hint. It has nothing to do with the ability. Well, it has only, it has very little in the scope of things to do with the ability to future cast. There's something much more meaningful to what they're called to do. All right, any questions before we dismiss? If not, let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for being a God who hears us when we call. And we ask that in light of the example set before us through these pages, that we would learn the lessons herein, that we might not fall into this cycle, that we may never see it come to pass in our lifetimes, but that we might remain faithful, that we might remain committed, that we might remain steadfast in your word and in your expectations of us, your children. So go with us as we leave this place. Guard our hearts and our minds that whatever we do, whatever we say, whatever we even think would be in accord with your will for us. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts truly be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person, to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.